Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 361st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Peter Taboris. Peter is a partner of Park Avenue Capital, an advisory firm affiliated with Northwestern Mutual based in New York City that oversees $2.4 billion in assets under management for almost 1,400 client households. What's unique about Peter, though, is how he and his business partner have built up their firm through a combination of organic growth and a series of mergers and acquisitions, all conducted within the Northwestern Mutual ecosystem, where Park Avenue Capital's size is one of the largest Northwestern Mutual offices in the country, and their ability to access debt financing provides a unique acquisition differentiator that's just further accelerating their growth. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Park Avenue Capital has grown to $20 million of revenue through a combination of organic growth and M&A activity, their approach to evaluating and valuing potential acquisitions, and the unique bank financing arrangements that they've been able to make to fund serial acquisitions over time. The way Peter and his firm have built out three-person advisor pods, including a lead advisor, an associate, and a client service administrator, and structures team support around the pods to allow them to increase their client capacity and productivity with a target of 50% gross profit margins. And how Peter and his business partner build a service-oriented culture at Park Avenue Capital, including hiring the former general manager of the St. Regis Hotel in New York to bring a new mindset to the firm about what it really means to provide a personalized client experience and bind the client to the firm's brand rather than their specific advisor. We also talk about how Peter started in the industry in New York City in the aftermath of 9-11 as an insurance salesperson charged with cold calling potential customers and how he took inspiration from the work of Nick Murray to overcome the challenge of hearing no from prospective clients on a regular basis and push through to grow his book of business. How Peter still thinks of his firm as being in the early stages of a startup, despite all the growth and acquisitions, because the business challenges that arise continue to be new and different as the firm grows. And why and how Peter created a business decision approach for himself by consciously considering what his older self would think of a potential choice rather than just what his current self would prefer. And be certain to listen to the end, where Peter discusses how he and his business partner came to the decision to hire a full-time CEO of their advisor enterprise so that they can focus on their strengths of generating new business and looking at the big picture rather than managing day-to-day operations. Peter's advice for advisors starting out is they try to generate prospects and build their initial book of business. And why Peter remains so upbeat about the advisory industry at large is one of the few high-income careers in America that can be achieved with very little business startup costs, especially since large firms will often front you a desk and a computer and a phone, where success is determined primarily by your ability to control and manage through your own visceral reaction to hearing the word no from prospects until you get to the next yes. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Peter Taboris. Welcome, Peter Taboris, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks very much, Michael. Glad to be here. I'm a big fan. Oh, I appreciate that. And I, I'm really excited for the, the conversation today and, and, and to get to hear and talk about more of, of what you've been building with your advisory firm. There's this trend I find in the, in, in the advisory world these days of just so much discussion about mergers and acquisitions, more and more firms being 
uh, uh, acquired. You see this particularly in the independent RIA channel, just because the 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 firms tend to broadcast this and press release it and and put it out there and some of the public data around. SEC registrations means like you can track a lot of this activity that we see all these firms getting transacted and projections that it's just going to keep going up as more and more advisors in the boomer generation kind of hit their own advisor retirement transitions and and shift out. But, you know, as much as this gets talked about in the RIA channel, it's not open only happening within RIAs. I mean, every advisor channel, uh, broker dealers are dealing with this, the banks and wirehouses are dealing with this, the insurance agencies are uh, uh, are dealing with this because, you know, the, the age demographics of advisors pretty much spans all of them. But I know you, you've been living this in particular in, in the large firm environment in, in a large insurance company that has many, many thousands of advisors and has its own proverbial pig in the python of, of advisors prospectively retiring. And and merger and acquisition opportunities, but I know it's it it's different when you do this in a large firm context. Both the the nature of everything from how the firms are structured and registered, because uh, you're not necessarily selling standalone entity enterprises, uh, to how the agreements work, to how you can finance all of it. And so I, I just I'm I'm looking forward to. I think it's going to be a a different and unique new perspective for advisors on some of the other ways that mergers and acquisition activities are happening when you get into a large firm environment and, and, and the path that you guys had to come and decide that that was part of what you wanted your growth path to be. Yeah, it sounds great. So I think as we, as we dive in, I'd love to start by just understanding your advisory firm as it exists today. So just help paint us the picture of the advisory business. So we, we, we understand what what where you are now, and then we can talk about how how you've come here and where it goes next. Yeah, so um, Ben Feldman is my partner, and I we've been at Northwestern Mutual myself since two thousand two, and Ben since two thousand four. So me over twenty years, him just shy of twenty years. Uh, and today we have thirty one employees, five advisors, and by the end of this year. We'll have close to 40 employees and uh, seven advisors. Uh, and today we are annualizing uh, somewhere in our ensemble, our group, uh, Park Avenue Capital is annualizing somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 and a half million of advisory um, revenue. And when I say revenue, I mean after uh, grid revenue, not before grid revenue. And then on top of that, we have a fairly significant what we would call risk or insurance revenue flow on top of that. Today, total revenue across our firm is about 17 million. Uh, and by the end of the year, we'll be annualizing about 20 million. Okay. And, and how many clients is, is this? So currently once we're, we're tabled to do another acquisition in November of this year, and after that point, we'll have 13 177 billing groups. So what constitutes a billing group? A billing group would be a family. So, you know, husband, wife, kids, et cetera. So so we look at it from a billing group. A household household unit kind of structure. Correct. Okay. And And I would say just the composition of those households, um, our billing group average is across those uh, 1377 clients is about $2 million. 
And when you look at the breakdown of the households themselves, about 6% of our revenue comes from the bottom 30% of billing groups. Um, and so if you remove the bottom 30% of billing groups, our household average uh, goes to 2.4 million. So we're very intentional in terms of using that data to drive decisions around minimums and who we're acquiring. And we can get into that more as we go on. And, um, and so then what's the overall AUM base for the firm? Right now, uh, AUM base is 2.4 billion. And at the end of this year, it'll be 2.7. So I'm also wondering that this world of, of billing groups and structure, I know for a lot of firms that have built in the insurance world, like you've got advisory clients that have sort of assets under management and recurring revenue. <coughs> Some of those advisory clients also do risk products. So they've done life insurance or long-term care or disability or something similar. Mm -hmm. And you may have some that have, that you've only written risk product for mm -hmm. that aren't on the advisory side. So I'm like, I'm just trying to frame in my head when you're talking about 1,377 billing groups, like is that all clients who might've done advisory or risk? Is that just like active advisory clients? And then there's, there's even more that might be on the risk side that sold something in the past. Yeah. That, that's active advisory uh, clients. Okay. There are certainly many more thousands of clients through acquisition and through our own legacy insurance production, which are okay. insurance only. Okay. Okay. So you have sort of indirectly, like there's an even larger base of clients who I guess who might still call the offense because they have a servicing need to update a beneficiary designation from a policy they got seven years ago or something. But when we when we talk about billing groups like active advisory AUM style. Correct. Correct. And then, and then on the come, we have um, through acquisition and then through our legacy insurance production, billions of dollars of permanent death benefit on the books, which ultimately, if we're asleep at the wheel, the Northwestern Mutual retention of death benefit in-house is about 15%, which is pretty, pretty, I mean, it should be more. So we figure if we can do a little bit better job than then, then Northwestern Mutual will be able to retain a bunch of AUM as clients, uh, as we're able to realize um, death benefits. Okay, so just the, the whole dynamic of if you wrote the insurance policy, there is a well, fifteen percent, roughly one in six chance that when the insured person passes away, that family members who receive the death benefits may continue to work with you, right? Uh, 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 a husband dies and death benefit goes to the spouse who continues to work with you or parents pass away and some of the kids continue to work with you. And um, I think the benefit of, I think, integrated clients. So we call clients that have both advisory and risk integrated. The percentage of retaining death benefit with integrated clients is higher than the company average for sure. Um, because you already have assets, you already have a financial plan with the family, et cetera. And in fact, in our valuation criteria for buying practices, practices that have estate planning, which names Northwestern Mutual the successor trustee for both insurance and investments, those practices are worth more than to us than those that don't. So um, because, because we have a higher probability of retaining those dollars in the event of the, um, you know, the, the family's death. So... I'm curious about some of the, just hearing some of these numbers. You said, thir so 1,377 
uh, billing groups, I'll sort of think of it like client client households. Mm-hmm. I think you had said five advisors. Mm-hmm. So, so any particular uh, advisor has like two hundred plus closing in on three hundred clients. If I'm just if I'm doing that math right, my my thinking about that correctly in in sort of client loads for any particular advisor. No, because we have a very specific service model for the thirty okay. percent of billing groups that are are represent only six percent of our revenue. So okay, so you've got kind of a, a an alternative quote unquote small client structure of what correct. you do with those small households. Correct. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like? Yeah. So if we think about our and we're still defining segmentation. Uh, and and that's an ongoing thing. But right now, anyone that's under half a million dollars of advisory goes to what we would call a small case desk, which is staffed with advisors that um, that are charged with meeting with or trying to meet with clients once a year. Maybe those clients right. get an updated financial plan every couple of years, and there are institutionalized touch points that we are we are trying to connect with client those clients on a regular basis. And so an advisor that's working the small case desk along with a second chair advisor and, and some other support around them, if if they're charged with meeting a client once a year, they have the the capacity much more than advisors that are meeting with clients with billing group averages of two and a half or three million a year right. that require four meetings a year. So so what kind of all right, so I guess I've got sort of two questions. So one <clears throat> Who are the advisors who are doing these meetings? Like, is it still the five advisors have this as part of their responsibilities or are there other centralized employees that do the once per year client meetings for the, the, the small case desk? Yeah, I I think it's like a, I think there's a bigger question there and it's really around like, you know, most advisors operate their, their business is a, a lifestyle practice. It's not really a business. And when you look at industry data, which we've dug pretty deep in the investment news studies, you know, generally speaking, average clients per advisor in a super ensemble, which we are classified as today, they're servicing 87 clients per advisor at a billing group average of about a million and a half dollars per client. And so the natural question you ask yourself is, okay, if this advisor is seeing 87 clients a year and does you know, in our service model, a million and a half dollar client does it need to be seen four times a year? But let's just say that advisor is seeing a client four times a year, uh, and there are sixty working days a quarter. That means that that advisor is having one and a half meetings a day with clients. And so, what are they doing with the rest of their time? Well, they're maybe they're trafficking for new business. They're doing some of their own prep work for cases. Um, maybe they're doing more service requests than they should. I mean, in the end, the most expensive line item in any super ensemble P&L are advisors. Yep. Most, mostly 30% of revenue is paid to, to advisors. And so our, what we're trying to challenge, and, and so what that says to me is essentially the super ensembles in the investment news study are just a larger version of a lifestyle practice. They're not really a business. And and the way that I would look at that is I would say, Be, well, because they're because their meeting count isn't that high. Be, I mean, and, I mean, if you're meeting one and a half clients a day, what are you doing with the rest of your time? OK, so my point would be the most unique asset in these businesses is advisor talent. The most valuable asset 
And if that advisor is doing anything other than sitting down with clients, they're suboptimally allocated. And so what we're doing is created centralized utility in planning, a centralized utility in service. And we're stacking that particular advisor with a second chair advisor that's responsible for uh, taking notes in a meeting, following up with a client, being the liaison between the planning utility and the advisor and the client, uh, and a client service person that's responsible for scheduling meetings, um, sending birthday cards, um, it, taking inbound requests for a 401k rollover and, and coordinating that with the operations utility. And so when you surround that advisor with the resources where the advisor's only job is to, to, to see clients, we think that an advisor could at least double the amount of clients that they see um, compared to the benchmark. So when I hear like <clears throat> five advisors in the firm, that's essentially five advisors that are in this like lead advisor. Your job is just like talk to clients, interact with clients as much as possible. And then each of those five would have a associate advisor that like sits second chair with them Correct. to do all the support work that goes along with this. Correct. And then you'd have a, a customer service person and we, we're called that a pod. So a pod is comprised of a first chair advisor, a second chair advisor, and a customer service person that is responsible for client facing interaction. Um, and so like, if so, so, so that's one of the drivers. So our goal is not to be at 30% profit margin or 35% profit margin, which is the average in the super ensemble. Our goal is to be at 50% profit margin. And the way you get to profit, higher profit margin, two different ways. You either increase your average billing group size relative to the benchmark. So today, the invested new super ensemble has a million and a half uh, as a as a average AUM per client. Um, so we could increase that. And we can also uh, increase our allocation of clients to advisors, which reduces your cost. And so and, and part of that is in our in, in trying to hire lead advisors, we're not hiring lead advisors in a traditional sense. You know, Ben and I have been successful because we were the survivors. Nine, nine of ten, as you know, nine of ten advisors that started in this business aren't there five years later. And so it's a very unique skill to be able to prospect and hunt. But there yeah. are a ton of advisors, maybe let's call it three out of the 10 that fall away, that could be world-class advisors, love the interaction with clients, but just don't want to be hunters. Right. And so our strategy essentially is to hire pay service advisors like high-quality lead advisors, onload them with more clients than the benchmark. And incentivize them around retention more than we do around new business. We will incentivize them, of course, if they do new business. But in the end, we're concerned with buying clients and retaining them. And so we are taking away that responsibility. And it ends up being a pretty attractive uh, um, opportunity for someone that loves the work but doesn't want to hunt in the jungle. And and so can I ask a little bit more of how that how that compensation and incentive structure works because I find that's a it's both a broad general debate in the industry, right? How <clears throat> how do you compensate the service minded advisors, and does that look different than the the I'll call it the traditional, at least the historical, like the hunter oriented advisors that are that are out there getting new clients? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the investment news study, um, the uh, top quartile 
Lead advisor, which is responsible for develop, developing new business, is about 300000 And a top quartile service advisor who's not responsible for, for generating new business is 150000 So we want to pay the, the top quality service advisor 300000 and And their incentive structure will be um, a certain percentage of that will be base and a certain percentage of that will be bonus. And that bonus will be weighed around retention. To the extent that they generate additional business, great. We will we'll compensate them for that. But so the focus make, is retention. I just want to make sure I follow those numbers. So the, um, so as you're framing like top quartile lead advisors who are out generating business, who are the proverbial hunters, are earning 300K in, in the investment news study. The top quartile advisors who are doing the service-oriented work are 150. You're hiring service people, but you want to get their comp to what the hunters do, which was the 300K number, but their incentives are built heavily around retention to get there as opposed to getting new clients to Correct. Because I believe that the 87 clients per advisor in the investment new study is suboptimal because there's an expectation you're asking someone to generate new business that they, on average, cannot generate effectively. And and so, is there a typical retention target that you set? Like everybody needs to be net zero, net positive, X percent of whatever they started. Like, how how where do you actually set those targets? It really is dependent on the segment. So we're expecting that higher quality advisor. So if you're an advisor operating in a three to five million dollar client segment, AUM segment, okay. we're expecting just by virtue of that pool of assets probably being more, the number would be higher. And then those clients are typically more engaged. They retire, they have a 401k rollover, et cetera, et cetera. So we're actively developing those targets based on our actual experience of what that client segment is is able to do um, over the course of years. And I guess the other um, dynamics that go with flows, like my clients at tax season have to take some money out for taxes, my clients are retired and taking some withdrawals for their actual spending retirement, like just that's that's part of either either what the advisor has to work to to overcome or that's part of the consideration when you set the target in Correct. the first place. Correct. We're not going to put somebody in a hole if they had all uh, for, uh, IRAs and all the IRAs were in RMD mode. We're not going to impair that advisor because of the these types of accounts we gave them. So it's going to be specific to the segment oh. and the pod. Oh, interesting. So, so advisors get their own targets based on where they are. So I guess just – I. You're you're kind of mentioning a lot around segments. Like, are is there a standard set of segments? Like, what are the segments? How do you think about segmenting this huge thousand plus client base? Yeah, yeah. So anyone under five hundred thousand goes to the small case desk. Anyone between five hundred thousand and a million is a C. Anyone between one and three million is a B. Three and five million is an A, and above five million is an A plus. And all of that is is really around revenue. Um, we're, we're, we're solving for our segments based on the amount of except, uh, revenue that each client group is, is generating. So as an example, um, clients that are in the C will get one meeting a year and the plan will be updated, uh, every year, or every other year, or if there's some sort of life event 
if they're a B, so one to three million, they're getting two to two meetings a year, and the plan is updated every year. Three to five million, uh, the plan uh, is an A, and they're getting three meetings a year with a plan update every year, obviously. Uh, and then above five million is an A plus, and and we'll customize to their needs. Are there other things that vary by client tier? besides meetings per year or is that really like that's the anchor point around which you manage the tiering the segments is how many meetings they get yeah i mean that's driving a majority of your resource allocation is how many meetings a year right because that that's what limits your capacity of advisors is how many meetings they can ultimately take correct i mean in the end across all the segments i think you can go from 150 to 500 households depending on the segment for a pod of advisors so figure Anyone above, so a pod that's servicing only A plus clients is probably going to have 150 households, and and the small case desk is going to service 500,000. Sorry, 500 households, um, and then kind of solve for everything in between. Okay, yeah, that was going to be one of my one of my other questions. Like, what what is the target count? And so that's where you, that's where you end up, like a pod which is basically three people like my senior advisor, my associate advisor, my client service manager. If you're all A plus clients, multi-multi-millionaires, your capacity might be 150. If you're all small clients under 500,000, then your capacity may go up to, to 500. Yeah, yeah. But and, think about – yeah. And, and think so about- all of that, if I'm mathing that well, like basically everybody's coming in somewhere in the neighborhood of like four to 500 meetings per year. That's uh, kind yeah. of where that blended rate comes out to be. Yeah, I think uh, 150 divided by 60 is – yeah, I think that's probably – I think that's reasonable. Uh, how many is that a day? Um, Let's see, 500 meetings a year. Still, like it's close to two per, per day. Right. I mean, if, right. you're, <clears throat> if you're roughly 200 to 250 uh, work, working days a year, right, F- five – Five working days a week, yep. fifty weeks, minus some holidays and vacation, the rest. Like a yep. little over two hundred working days for a lot of advisors. So if you're at four to five hundred, you're still only air quotes. Like you're only at uh a little over two, two and a half meetings a day, depending on quite how much vacation and such you've got. Yeah. I mean, I think some of that number is skewed by the small case desk right, because right, it represents right. such a large percentage of the billing groups. But, you know, that's a, that's an interesting point as we talk about acquisitions. That's actually pretty uniform across every book that we've looked at is that only 6% of the revenue represent about 30% of the billing groups. So we are not planning on losing the, the uh, households under half a million. They're all important. But all of our deals are underwritten, assuming that the $500,000 billing groups or lower, just leave the day that the transaction happens. And you said, in addition to meetings, like you have tried to institutionalize other touch points to clients on a regular basis. Can you talk a little bit about what the other touch points are and, and just how, how you guys are doing that and pursuing it? Yeah. So one of the things that I did a number of years ago, which has been an amazing, amazing benefit to our business, and I think can be a benefit to others. You know, our business ultimately in the end is a customer service business. And a couple of years ago, I asked myself the question, who are the best customer service people in the world? And the most underappreciated best customer service people in the world are general managers and assistant general managers of the world's best hotels. So I hired the GM of the St. Regis in New York as our chief experience person. And it's 
transformed the way that we interact with clients on a day-to-day basis. And the idea is that each pod will actually get an assistant general manager-like person that's in charge of running the sub-experience of that pod, all under the supervision of Brendan, who's our chief experience officer. And so the goal in 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 that in that experience is to it, well the goal the, the overarching goal is to transform the experience of anyone that touches our organization, which would include clients, uh, joint work partners, um, acquisition partners, home office people, anybody that ever uh, that ever touches us. And um, I think that starts with um, just the feeling you get or engineering an experience. Uh, in, with a feeling that you get when you walk into a world-class hotel and, and realize that everything's taken care of. So um, the nuts and bolts of that are, um, you know, every client, when they're onboarded, um, so one of our customer service experience people actually um, ask probing questions about their life, their family, what their likes and dislikes are. And especially in the segments, A segments, above 3 million and above 5 million, we're actually, the pod is creating a very specific marketing plan for that client, not for the segment. So we know what they drink, uh, what what kind of wine they like. We know um, what sport teams they like. And so when there's a milestone event in their life, we are are following that with a gift, a, a curated gift experience um, that, that, that they appreciate very much. Um, Interesting. So that's the kinds of questions that you're asking on onboarding these, like, yep. do you, do you drink, what's what's your favorite wine wine or beer or alcohol of choice Correct. what what sports teams you're into and you said your that your client service administrator folks ask that so it's not coming from the advisor that's correct. coming from the service team correct we are not i mean the advisor might pick that information up in a discussion with a sure. client but uh, we are we are we want that we want the advisor is not responsible for curating the experience other than the financial planning experience when they're in front of that client, well, that's Every, everything else we are institutionalizing and creating essentially a mass customization experience model. Interesting. The firm, the firm is trying to institutionalize the rest of that, which is why the firm, the firm, quote unquote. So, like the the service team is asking the experience questions, not necessarily coming from the advisor. Advisor Correct. is, I'm saying, like just I'm putting a lot of air quotes here. The advisor is just give awesome advice. Correct. And, 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 and there's a secondary goal to that, which is this business, you know, our goal is to be at um, 200 million in revenue in 10 years, which is essentially 10 X of our current state. Uh, And that business needs to be three things. It needs to be profitable. It needs to be sustainable and it needs to be transferable. And um, sustainability involves the brand being the anchor to the client relationship, not any one advisor. And so, so can you talk a little bit more just about how, how you're trying to do that in practice? I think that's, that's a challenge and, and fear for a lot of firms, right? Like how, how do you, how do you bind the clients to the firm and not the individual advisor? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, part of that institutionalized customer experience that I'm talking about, which is the, fir- the, the, the advisor isn't um, responsible for the, the Park Avenue Capital experience. They're 
responsible for the Park Avenue Capital financial planning experience. Um, you know, anything they can add above that is great, obviously. But in the end, their interaction is with their former assistant general manager of a five-star hotel uh, who is – they don't call my clients. My A-plus clients don't call me. They call Brendan. And uh, because Brendan is – not that I'm not pleasant, but Brendan is overly pleasant. Right. He will go out of his way. It starts with a yes. Every question starts with a yes. He's trying to get to yes for people. And, you know, he's warm and he's engaging and, you know, that is his mojo is that that's, that's my mojo is strategy planning and working with clients. His is creating an experience which transcends financial planning. And and ultimately what happens too, is we have some pods that at the end of the year, will will sit down and, and, and actually, um, talk about their clients and, and they know some of the clients cross pods. And so they'll advocate of one advisor saying, you know, I'd like to take that client this year. And then that advisor will sit second chair to the primary advisor and that relationship will transition. So, so the idea is in the pod system that there is a, there is essentially think of it like a, um, there is an opportunity for anyone in our organization to, to elevate and that's the goal is to create a, a career trajectory for someone. You know, our, our, our business right now is 50 employees. We're going to have 150 in 10 years. So in some ways, this is, this, these are the early innings of a startup. And there's a great opportunity for employees that prove to be valuable outside of financial planning. So I think- It's a humbling thing to have a multi-billion dollar firm and think of it as a early stage startup. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly, I do think of it in that way, very much so. Um, so we're, uh, so we're, so in that, in that, in that philosophy around, you know, employees and moving them up into the right, um, inherent in that is a natural rotation of advisors through the pods. And so that to me creates more of a sustainable, uh, orientation with clients because their experience is not just with one person. It might be with multiple people, all who are familiar and um, and who uh, who have been with Park Avenue Capital for a long time, et cetera. Wait, help me understand that. So you're r- rotating advisors through the through the pods. Like, are we talking about at the at the lead advisor level? Like, clients are liter- are, are severely rotated around, or is this at the the associate advisor level? Like, associates are going to get to work on multiple pods and see how different advisors. So, so associate advisors, so second chair advisor, their, their, their career trajectory isn't remaining a second chair advisor. Right, right, right. It's, it's elevating to a first chair advisor and the first chair advisor, their goal is to either elevate to bigger clients with, with bigger problems or take one of the many positions that emerges in our organization as we continue to scale at this pace. So the natural, the, the underlying that mechanism, what ends up happening is I, I believe that there's more of an institutionalized relationship with a client where they still see uh, Joe Smith and now Joe Smith is managing a group of pods and Joe Smith maybe dips in and out of a meeting and says, hello, and how are things going, et cetera, et cetera. But their financial planning relationship is with 
um, the second chair advisor who now is their first chair, and there's a new second chair sitting in that meeting. And so I, the idea is that, you know, we don't want any one advisor to anchor to a set of clients for a set, set group of clients for, you know, many years. I mean, in theory, I guess that could work. But in the end, in the end, that's less sustainable because if that client go, if that advisor goes, uh, then you know the, the, some clients might go as well. So indirectly, you you will sort of trigger a a rotation of clients as some clients start bo- bonding to their uh, the associate advisors who be- eventually become a lead advisor and and effectively kind of split split the team off into two teams that each now have more capacity to add clients and fill back up again. Correct. So like an example, when I have a second chair advisor and I'm looking to transition that relationship, I, and there's a follow-up, the client just moved uh, jobs and there's a 401k and they want to talk to disability insurance. I say, Mike, um, during the meeting, Mike, why don't you follow up with Joe and um, go and help walk through the new benefit structure at his new company. And now Mike is developing rapport and running with that opportunity, and 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 over and over another six months, more and more intentional rapport will be generated between those two, and then all of a sudden Mike's running the meeting, and I'm sitting essentially second chair and can ride off into the sunset. Maybe I periodically dip in and say, "Hey guys, how are things going? You know, great to see you. How's your family?" But um, but I think. That's the goal is to, to constantly redefine our segmentation. You know, we want to continue to move up into the right-hand segmentation, um, have our advisors who are now more experienced and um, our, our, our great advisors to continue to evolve and develop and, and work with bigger and more sophisticated clients. So um, this isn't a static uh, role. And, and I guess now connecting the dots when – when your advisors are paid on salary with retention bonuses, but not necessarily sort of a classic percentage of revenue, they don't take a financial hit when the team splits. Right. The pressure's on you to when you split a team, like, oh, well, they're getting the full salary and their team small, so we better fill this back up pretty quickly. So the, the, the pressure's on you to fill them back to capacity, but they don't take a pay cut when their team splits. Correct. I mean, the math, the math in this pod structure is pretty compelling, right? So like, let's say we have 3 million a household, 3 million in our $3 million segment average, let's say it's an average of 3 million a household and you have 150 clients. That's 450 million in AUM at a 70 basis point asset yield. That's three, 3.2 million in revenue. Right. That's three, that's over three X per advisor compared to the benchmark super ensemble. Um, so so, you know, what does it cost to operate that pod? Um, you know, f- let's say in that segment, you're paying a really good advisor, you know, 300,000 base and 100 bonus based on retention and some new, some some incentives for new business. Second chair is making, you know, 150. Service market person's making 150. Maybe you have a $250,000 allocation to ops and planning, 100,000 in miscellaneous. And then maybe there's a management layer. You're operating well above a 50% margin in that in that math. So again, I think, I think our goal in creating a more profitable business is to target um, really how many households a particular advisor is managing. And then we are paying a premium in our acquisitions for uh, households that represent 
ideal for us. Um, so imagine if the benchmark practice in the investment news study, rather than having a million and a half average, they had a two and a half million average. They need the same infrastructure or maybe marginally different, um, but they're generating on 2,000 clients another $2 billion in AUM. Right. Which is another fifteen million in revenue. So um so we are we are hyper focused on uh acquiring the right types of clients um with the goal of of really solving for the a, a prop a sustainable uh and profitable business. And just continue to recognize and emphasize like higher <clears throat> incrementally higher assets or revenue per client on the same infrastructure and service model just drops the bottom line. So right. if we can get slightly more affluent clients and service them the, the same way, it's, it's just more profitable. You get radically more, uh, uh, radically higher asset clients and they, they tend to expect a little bit more, but like incrementally more, you can do it more, more profitably on the same service model. And I can see, and that's why you have such a focus around client per advisor capacity because that, that team capacity and being able to have teams manage a higher capacity of of assets and revenue is what is what drives so much of this. Right, and part of the reason that we're paying more for a service type of role is that we want to take the best lead advisors, non-owner lead advisors across the industry and take away the expectation of them doing new business and just put them in front of more clients. And we think we can be incredibly competitive in the talent game if we're willing to pay the, the the salary or the total comp of a, of a top quality lead advisor that's responsible for generating new business and just give them service advisor responsibilities. So, so in, in that vein and, and shifting tracks a little bit now, talk to us about growth at the firm level and, and I guess by mergers and acquisitions, I, I know is a big part of it, but Talk to us about how growth works in this world where you've got all these highly compensated, not business developing oriented advisors, not necessarily business development oriented. So, you know, for, for most firms historically, like that literally was the growth plan. Like lead advisors are supposed to get clients and grow their teams. And that's sort of the, the classic deal. So help us understand how growth works in your world. Yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 growth, I mean, Ben and I to this point before we did this acquisition in March, which was the largest advisor practice acquisition in the history of Northwestern Mutual. Before we did that, prim- we 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 grew primarily from organic channels. Uh and Ben and I through our organic channels, our 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 minimum net cash flow into advisory goal for for us together is 150 million a year. Um, which is a, which is a big number, but we we continue to hit it every year. Um, so the first channel is that is why we are who we are. We have the ability to generate organic cash flows that are substantial and and ultimately provide significant growth to the at the firm level. Um, and then the second area is is because we come in with such strong legacy PLs, meaning we didn't borrow to to grow. Uh, we can lever that up and buy others. Um, and so that represents a very uh, a strategic um, advantage compared to competitors in that um, our ability to borrow, most most buyers are operating um, 
acquisitions as a dividend stock, where they're dependent on some of the income that's coming from the acquisition after the cost of the acquisition, financing, et cetera. Uh, ben and I don't need the money. So we're reinvesting, we're, we're, we're operating acquisitions like a growth vehicle. And we're reinvesting the, the, the quote unquote profit into uh, infrastructure, people, and multiples. Because just through scale, our multiple, our collective multiple goes up. So by way of example, Ben and I, two years ago, at operating separately compared to Ben and I today, um, when, when we merged along with this new acquisition, our multiple on our legacy P&Ls went up 25% just by virtue of scale. Simply because the valuation, because there's such a size premium to to the valuation of advisory firms, each of you running separate practices got the 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 small practice multiple. When you merge together and become a multi-billion dollar firm, you get the multi-billion dollar firm multiple that's higher than the small individual practice multiple. And so the two of you together with the same assets and the same revenue, the same profits, still get a higher valuation multiple simply because you're you're larger and there is a size premium in today's world. Correct. And then, you know, ultimately the drivers of valuation are profit, profit margin, and and those things are driven by service model and AUM per household. So that's why we're so hyper-focused on service model and AUM per household because, you know, I think ultimately like this is it, in, in the, the buyers out there, businesses like this are in the asset aggregation game. I think in in a jump ball scenario, if we're more profitable, have a higher profit margin, have a leaner and meter service model and a higher AUM per household, we're going to be more valuable than the person that's not focusing on that. So so when we're looking at acquisitions specifically, we are making those decisions and paying a premium for businesses that are on board with aligning with what we're trying to build, meaning we're going in to an, a conversation around an acquisition with an early, in an early discussion, gathering their book level investment detail and giving them a 10 page report on here's, here's, you know, the amount in mutual funds, ETFs, individual stocks, where's where are your off benchmark bets? What's your cost structure across client portfolios? What's your um, dispersion amongst in performance amongst clients, client accounts? Um, what is the tax structure of your client accounts and essentially putting together a recommendation and a plan which is designed to increase their valuation to us. So if you do X, Y, and Z, we will pay you this because that's the difficult work is, is, is getting alignment in clients and then more specifically investment in the portfolios and then in operations, et cetera. Wait. And so you're, You'll consult with your advisor, advisors you prospectively might want to buy about how to make their firm more expensive for you. Right. Because it's expensive regardless. If we're having to reorient the clients, uh, that's expensive for us. So we would rather have them reorient the clients. And, and, that's, uh, and it, it's a cost either way. But I guess from the, from the business end, if you acquire them for cheaper and then have to and retrain and restructure their clients and their practice to align to you, you run the risk that doesn't go well and the deal blows up. Correct. 
if they do the work, you have to pay a little bit more, but you're buying essentially a a, a higher quality, less risky Correct. acquisition from your perspective. Correct. And so, you know, uh, and and by the way, on top of that, if they say this sounds great, we want to we want to get there, uh, we will actually partner with them, and um, they'll pay us through account splits, and we'll actually become their back office, and we will give them an actual transition plan and a way to uh, a roadmap in order to get there, and we'll actually do the work. As long as they're reorienting the clients, we will provide the infrastructure and support to and back office to make it happen. But there are other drivers of valuation, right? So investment alignment is a really important one. So we're asking questions like at the client level. So remember, we're not looking at evaluation at the top. We're actually digging into the client data. So when was the last time the client had a financial plan done and discussed? How old are they? What's the household AUM? What is their, what is their broader net worth? What is the net cash flow at the account level? How long have they been a client? Are they integrated? Meaning, do they have risk products? Um, what's their estate planning structure? Are you having that conversation? And and so all of those things go into the, our valuation methodology. Uh, and so the clients that check all those boxes are exceptionally valuable to us. Um, the clients that only have three of them aren't as valuable. So we're really digging deep. And so I'm envisioning basically like a a ginormous spreadsheet that's got like all of these different factors you toggle it for each individual client. There's some formulas that show like how much higher or lower your valuation multiple is as you check yeses and nos and amounts for each of these various factors. And then it all rolls up to one one giant valuation for the practice in the aggregate. Like is yeah. that a yeah, fair, I think fair so. characterization of how this yeah, flows? Yeah. I mean it's 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 somewhat arbitrary, right? Because you're assigning you you would be we're we're assigning a weighting that isn't that is is valuable to us, but isn't traditionally used in evaluation multiple uh, process. So we're actually using that what we would call an index, evaluation index, to compare them against other businesses that we're looking at. So it's not d- directly translatable into a multiple. But it's used as a to compare other benchmark practices that, or businesses that we're looking at, and we have done extensive modeling with consultants around what we are willing to pay based on AUM service model, et cetera, for various businesses. So we have a very <clears throat> a very complex financial model that um, allows us to toggle the average um, household per relationship multiple and we can forecast based on a certain pace of acquisitions what our profit will be and ultimately what um, our, this business is worth in your in years forward so <clears throat> I want to make sure I understand this like valuation in index so because you're in the northwestern system so there's pardon me I don't even know how many thousands of advisors now many I think it's about seven thousand Okay. So you've got lots of practices you can potentially look at that might be of interest. So there's, but I, there's about, a, there's, there's probably less than a thousand. Okay. Uh, it's still a pretty darn big market of, of firms. So, uh, so in a world where there's a thousand firms that you might be able to buy, if I'm understanding correctly, the, the dynamic of the valuation index, like you're, 
you've got some target of this is the multiple word, just we're willing to pay for a good fit firm based on our financials and, and the model that we need going forward. So then we might look at five different firms that we're considering, and each of them gets a, a relative valuation index weighting, like this is 1.2 times more valuable than the benchmark practice Correct. for us. This is 1.1. This is only 0.9. Uh, and and so you're, then your price or both which one you want to buy and your price or your offer will dial up or down from whatever your original benchmark rate was in the first place. Correct. And then, and then we're also, I mean, so we're constantly in loan underwriting. Or, or so so we're every year we need to redo our evaluation so we know the when when we're about to do an acquisition we reorder that and know based on the based on the size of the acquisition the client the the client base etc we know what that acquisition will add to the collective in terms of evaluation multiple so that also gives us some some leeway in terms of being competitive in in, in an offer to a business. So, um, so then can I ask what's like, what's the, I guess the benchmark valuation multiple that you use? Like what's, what's the starting point that you're trying to acquire firms at that's a, a you know, a, a good accretive deal for you if the, you know, if their factors are reasonably on target? I mean, I would say depending on the client base. So, so that's a complicated question because typically the deal structure, you know, the present value of any asset is its ability, its earnings, its future earnings. So right. most of our deals include a large percentage of up, upfront cash and then um, an earnout period, usually two to three years, where we have an expectation that that advisor stays on, transitions clients to a second chair advisor and um, and is able to generate accretive net cash flow. And so so the natural question is okay what well, what are you willing to pay? I mean you know there we would be willing to pay really any multiple and the reason we would say that is because um, if you think about it like this let's say the deal up front on a million in revenue is 3x so it's a 3 million dollar deal. But part of our earnout agreement um, incentivized that advisor to do to, to bring in more AUM. And let's say that our resources were able to weaponize them to get in different markets, win different opportunities, et cetera. And at the end of the two-year period, now they're annualizing at $2 million in revenue. So they've doubled their revenue. We'd be willing to pay that advisor 6X, which is essentially uh, 6X on 1 million, which is 3X on two. Do you follow that math? Yep. So, yep. So, so when an advisor comes in and says, you know, I want to get 6X, I'm like, there's a path to 6X for sure. If you do X, Y, and Z, we'll pay you six X. And so, I think you're. I think, you know, what is the benchmark? I mean, the benchmark in the market is two and a half to three times revenue for a lifestyle practice doing two to three million in revenue. You know, so I think that's the that's the that's the benchmark. I think when you package in growth, it could be more than that. Right. Okay. Yeah. That like that's that's what I was sort of wrapping my head around as well. So you're you live a. You know, sort of like a flat line starting point is two point five to three x revenue. If they've got a growth goal or a growth target and they're Correct. willing to aim for it, like Correct. essentially you'll 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 prepay or commit to a payment for the growth that they're going to generate. Correct. With the asterisk that 
that's going to be on an earnout basis. So if that if that growth does not come, you do not get those dollars. I'm not paying you cash up front for growth you're supposed to do later, but I'll pay you cash for what you've got now and a committed multiple on the growth you generate so that if you want to keep growing, you will get compensated for it. Correct. And we should probably touch on, you know, just generally like who the buyers in the marketplace are, like, you know, in general, I think most advisors or a large group of them are are thinking that someone on their team might buy them. Um, and so, um, and, you know, oftentimes when we're coming in and we're, 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 we're the bad guy in that scenario where the team member thinks they're potentially going to be the ultimate buyer and, right. and we're coming in and offering, but ultimately it comes down to counterparty, right? Like who is a stronger counterparty? So we're creating a management incentive plan in our entity, which creates a separate pool of capital um, for um, those that for potentially G2 advisors who feel a little, uh, you know, burned by the fact that they're not going to be buying the business um, and essentially aligning the G2 advisor with the seller and saying, if you guys hit certain uh, goals over your remaining working relationship, you're going to earn your way into the management incentive pool to a business that if we end up getting to 200 million in revenue, we're talking about uh, over a billion dollar enterprise. So that, that can be meaningful. Um, others that will earn into the to the management incentive pool would be valued employees. And then we're also creating like a founder's class for certain high quality um, sellers that are, 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 can provide strategic benefits to our business separate and apart from just the sale of their clients. Um, so we're really looking to align sellers and valuable team members in the growth of the enterprise. So help me understand though, just what it, what does management incentive plan mean at the end of the day? Like, is this a is this a way to get equity? Is this simply like additional compensation dollars that are paid out of a you know a, a, a pool to eligible people if certain goals are met? Like, what is this? It's a profits interest uh, in the management company, and you okay. can be very specific with how that profit interest vests. Uh, and how it's paid, and what are the criteria where it's where it's forfeited? So, so basically, once that individual earns its, their way into the management incentive pool, it's at the valuation on a forward basis at the time they've earned the grant. So, there's no taxable income to the receiver. It's a profits interest in um, either the operating profit and or the exit profit of the business when we sell. So. We can actually have varying management incentive pool certificates for various different employees, which has different terms, different vesting, different uh, and and different payment in the waterfall depending on the person. So now, help me understand how you're financing acquisitions. Just a lot of firms do this, just sort of industry wide. Like they go out to a private equity firm, they raise capital, which essentially means they they issue shares to a private equity firm in exchange for cash. That they then use to go go and acquire. You had mentioned earlier, like we're we're in constant loan underwriting, and so it sounds like you're you're doing this more debt based than equity based, as as some other firms have done. So help us understand just how you're financing this acquisition system. Yeah, I mean the equity is too valuable to give away at this point, um, just given our growth trajectory. 
so we, like I said, Ben and I are, because we haven't grown through uh, acquisition in the past, we are exceptionally well capitalized and can lever up our P&L. Uh, and so, but it's not just P&L, it's, it's, you know, we, we are, we are, um, levered together and our whole lives are leathered, uh, sorry, levered. Um, and so when you're thinking through financing and you're buying multiple businesses, the most important, uh, loan that you do isn't your first one, it's your fifth one. And so, because no bank is going to want to take second position. If you do a deal with one bank and you hit their capacity, at a $15 million deal, the next deal you do, the, no, the first bank is going to give their give up their position and the second bank isn't going to want second position. So, so you have to be partnering with institutions that have capacity and the ability to, um, to meet your needs in terms of financing. Okay. Because, um, because <clears throat> if I'm going to do deals serially, like, you know, I, I guess it's like hypothetical numbers. Like I, I buy five practices for two or three, you know, $5 million practices. It costs me two or 3 million each, as we said earlier. So like I can get a 3 million loan and then another 3 million loan, another 3 million loan, another 3 million loan, another 3 million loan. But at some point the bank, if it was a smaller bank, they might say like, look, we're only willing to do up to $15 million in total loans Correct. to any one customer. Cause that's part of the bank's Correct. Concentration risk retention policy. Right. And so you're chugging along great doing these. You get to the fifth loan. You're now up to 15 million. You've hit the capacity cap. Right. The bank says, we don't want to do a sixth loan. We can't lend you anymore. You go to a second bank and say, we'd like to do a $3 million loan. And they say, well, sure, but we need to be in first position if your company defaults. And you say, well, I, I can't be in first position because the other guys with 15 million are in first position. So now either I have to refinance the whole 15 plus the next deal with the new bank or i just have to find a bank that's got a larger capacity in the first place that isn't going to get capped so soon correct and so in our in our strategy we have we we had to put and i think this represents a competitive advantage for us we we found two banks that partnered together to manage our capacity so they're sharing in the risk so we have the ability to go many, many millions in, in debt if we need it. Okay. So you, you were, you found two banks that would work together to split the risk so you can get a higher borrowing capacity, which means you can run this longer on the current cycle before eventually you may still have to find the, the, the next bank that swims in bigger ponds when you get to a certain. Yeah. I mean, remember, so, so most of these loans are, are, so in general, in the industry loans are amortized over seven or 10 years. So um, and, and, and incidentally, that's what makes the cash flow tight for a generation two purchaser is that valuations haven't really moved and, and at 8%, the cash flow becomes pretty tight. So we're paying down a pretty significant amount of principal on an annual basis. So every month as we pay down principal, that raises our capacity and our, and our organic growth raises our capacity. So, um, I don't really see in our, in our modeling in terms of like capacity, you know, our goal is to do at least five million acquisitions of revenue on an annual basis. This year, we did seven. At a, if we kept at seven million and did 150 million of net new cash flow into advisory a year for the next seven years, by 2030, we're at like 75 million in revenue as an at at the enterprise level. So we're gonna have, you know, there, there's and, and all that while we're gonna have been 
hanging down amortization. So we've all modeled that and it's it still works at that pace. Interesting. Because I was going to say then just you, you just have to manage to this dynamic of, I think you'd said like closing in on 17 million of revenue this year, annualizing about 20 million. So just making like round numbers round and easy. Like if you could do a 50% margin on that, you've basically got $10 million of of free cash flow. So that gives me a lot of, of both borrowing capacity because I can I can borrow tens of millions of dollars before I hit um uh typical debt coverage ratios that, that banks want to see. Uh, but that that should give me enough cash that almost by definition, if I then buy a purchase that I finance over seven to ten years, my business is still very, very cash flow positive. But if I want to, I should have enough free cash flow to pay down some of my debt. Correct. Which then gives me more capacity the next year. So I guess the the piece I'm wondering though is if you've got that much free cash flow, like why not just buy with cash? Like why go through the process of the debt and take on debt and then use your free cash flow to pay down the debt that you could have just not taken because you have that much free cash flow? Like how do you think about using debt versus just paying cash when you've got a such a profitable base. Well, we, we, Ben and I have seven kids between the two of us under eight years old, and we live in the New York area. So, <laughs> uh, so it's an expensive lifestyle. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think in our view, on an after tax basis, you know, so our our loans are priced to the seven year treasury, a margin to the seven year treasury, um, and on an after tax basis, at the rate with which we're growing, that's a reasonable arbitrage. So. Um, I'm not, uh, I'm, we're, remember on a, on an after tax basis, we're borrowing at three if the rate's seven or three and a half if the rate's seven. So I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that as a hurdle for arbitrage and cash. Ultimately, like it, we're investing heavily in infrastructure. We're going to hire a CEO and that's going to cost us, yeah. you know, half a million dollars just to do that. Um, we got to hire a new chief marketing person. We've got to, um, we, there's there's a whole bunch of, of of hires in our strategic plan, and we want to remain nimble and um, and we can borrow and and the hurdle's not high, so so we want to remain nimble. Interesting. So so if I'm understanding right, there's kind of a blend of this just helps near term cash flow, right? At the at the end of the day, if I'm if I'm getting seven to ten year amortizing loans, like it's it's it, it's a lot easier on cash flow to pay one tenth of the purchase this year than to pay all of it from cash. So I I get a a short term cash flow lift, um, which helps when you've got seven kids under eight in the New York City area. So there's cash flow benefit, and then there's just sort of the pure economic arbitrage of debt financing in general. You're paying a margin over seven year treasury seven year treasury that's adding up to a rate of about seven. After tax, that's barely three something. Uh, my advisory firm, organically, I mean, just even markets on the AUM Correct. are growing at better than that on average over time. So uh, there's there's a granted risk based arbitrage because this doesn't have to go well in any particular year. Thanks thanks to markets, but uh, market growth plus any level of underlying organic growth means my growth rate should be better than my borrowing costs. So not unlike all of us that tell clients, you should keep the mortgage and stay invested, not withdraw from your portfolio Correct. to pay down your mortgage because of the arbitrage. Like you've 
you've effectively got the the same thing here, except yep. ironically, advisory firms are even more leveraged to the upside in market growth because of the operating leverage than like just owning a portfolio and a mortgage. Correct. And and by the way, every because of how quickly we're growing, every decision uh, so I'm 43 years old. Every financial decision that we make at the firm level isn't asking my 43-year-old self. It's asking my 46-year-old self. And my 46-year-old self, my 43-year-old self is really uncomfortable hiring a CEO and paying them half a million dollars a year. But my 46-year-old self is saying, don't be an idiot. You got to do this. So, and I think that that's, I think most advisors, you know, I, I'm not investing in mutual funds. I'm investing in this. Um, and, um, and there's going to be no better return on my savings over my lifetime than, than sticking to this. And so is that literally like, you don't, you don't take profits out to put in the, in investment portfolios, like you plow profits back into this because this is your way to grow with markets. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I would look at that as doubling. I would look at putting money in equities for myself personally as doubling down on equity. I mean, I already have enough market exposure um, in this in this enterprise. So, And it's levered. It's not just, it's like, it's market exposure on steroids because we're, 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 we're going to be highly levered. So. so, so what are, like, what's the biggest challenge you're finding as you're trying to just e- execute on growth this way? Um, I think it's, there's a change management element that's, that's challenging. Um, you know, we have, Ben and I had teams. So Ben and I formally came together in 2021. And prior to that, we had just been operating as separate teams. And then we had this acquisition in 2023, um, which brought in a team. And so, you know, up until, you know, just recently, we've been operating somewhat together, but still as three separate and distinct teams. And so we've, worked and done a lot of work on how uh, how we're going to bring everybody together to have a common common goals common vision common mission and values and um, and actually come up with an org structure across the organization um, what roles we need to fill in the near term and, and and beyond that and so I think just the change management in that is could just it's it's not just today it's going to be ongoing because we are because every business we buy comes with uh, talent that we want to integrate probably. And, um, and that just requires a lot of change. Um, every seller that we're working with has been the top dog and now they're not going to be making decisions. Right. So that is a, is a, is a significant, um, you know, just a, it's a, it's a factor that, occupies a good portion of our day. Like how do we manage that um, element? Um, But, you know, we're getting experience in doing it and certainly we've made mistakes um, and we'll continue to make mistakes, but the end product is what we feel is a better solution um, for sellers compared to, you know, whatever other alternatives they have out there. Um, And by the way, we're not specifically, just buying Northwestern Mutual businesses, we're talking, we're looking at everything. Um, it's easiest to buy businesses at Northwestern Mutual because there's some philosophical alignment for sure. Northwestern Mutual is a planning first culture. Um, and uh, and there's familiarity with the client. So 
the, the attrition risk is much less. It's not a cross-platform change, which requires paperwork. It's just a rep code change in a back office. So certainly it's more attract. It's, it's easier for us to do deals at Northwestern, but we're, we're open to doing deals anywhere. So you'd comment on like mistakes you've made along the way. So what were the biggest mistakes that blindsided you as you started getting into this acquisition world? I think in the beginning, when we started, we started working through this, I think we moved a little quickly on some of our assumptions uh, and would have been better served at taking a measured approach, a more measured, we're kind of learning along the way. And so there's mistakes all inherent in that um, from, you know, when we're, when we're going to the finish line on closing our first deal, some issues came up um, in the, the the banks were pushing back on a couple points that we were asking for, and we were confident we were going to get it done, but it didn't look exactly the way we had envisioned it. And so I think in some ways, um, I think we were overly optimistic in trying to get our first big deal done and, um, and should have been more uh, thoughtful in some of the finer details. Ultimately, we got it done and it's fine. Um, but we might have approached it a little bit differently if we had if we had um, not been so singularly focused on getting it done and just been a little bit more deliberate. Um, other things that are have been or some other mistakes, you know, not really doing a good job in fact finding the process of the seller from March. We thought that he was using some specific tools that he had developed and were compliance approved but weren't scalable in our, um, in our model. And so that after the closing, there was some friction around the scalability of that tool relative to our common practices. And, mm. and so, um, so just doing a better fact finding process early on with a seller in terms of their processes, uh, in order to not have that conversation happen post be like a postmortem point, um, probably would have served us a lot better and, and, and created a lot less heartache. Um, we ended up in a good spot together, um, but it definitely was avoidable. You know, you want to avoid yeah. the avoidable. So you had said part of your work and kind of the change management and bringing the teams together is, is envisioning the, the org structure and roles of the, of the future. So can you share with us a little bit more on that end? Like how are you visioning the, the org structure going forward from where you are? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it starts with CEO, a CFO, well, not a CFO at this stage, but but at some point in the future, um, more the traditional roles will have a board which has um, internal and external folks. I think ultimately Ben and I, my partner, are are really great at generating new business, thinking strategically and big picture. We're not great in the day to day, so that's part of what we've recognized early on is like leave your ego at the door and hire what's best for the business, not what's best for your ego. And so we are in, we are going to be in a position or we've come together and and determined that the long term in the long, or even in the near medium term, uh, the person that's running the day to day, did the day to day to the business is not us. Um, and so the most important hire that we're going to have in the coming two years is going to be a CEO. Um, but outside of that, um, creating more formal structure around 
departments, so planning, investments, uh, operations, having key leadership roles in those departments responsible for, um, you know, executing what the, the leadership team is passing down. And we have a lot of those key leadership roles who we think will fit those leadership roles in our existing structure. But the goal of creating an extensive org chart is really to, is a powerful tool for our existing team and folks that we're trying to bring into the opportunity because we want them to see a really exciting possibility for career progression with us. And ultimately, those that are key players will earn their way into what we think will be an exceptionally valuable business. So, and, and so I just, I've got to ask, like, how are you feeling about the idea of a CEO who runs your, your business day, day to day at this size? Like that's a, it's a lot of net worth to have someone else running day to day. Relieved. Really? Yeah, exactly. I think there's clearly right now I'm the acting CEO. And so I'm involved in personnel decisions, HR issues, um, right. financial stuff. But that's not my, Ben and my greatest asset to this business is acquisition oriented. So closing deals and being in front of clients. And um, no different than the allocation of our lead advisor talent. Like, we want everybody optimized to what they're best at. And I'm not best at thinking about the payroll for January 15th, 2024. So I will have a pulse on what's going on, but what my strengths are are not leadership and development. And we're bring, we want to bring somebody in who brings that to the table and then some. So what surprised you the most about this path of building and scaling your own advisory business? You know, when I graduated from school, it was post-September 11th, so really difficult to get a job, the first class after September 11th with a background in finance in New York, I had a transformational moment. So I started with Northwestern Mutual. I, I went to Cornell. I started cold calling Cornell people and had some success early on helping folks transactionally. So, you know, retirement rollovers, education accounts, uh, life insurance, disability insurance. And then I encountered Nick Murray, who mm. I consider myself like the Prime number one. There's no bigger disciple of Nick Murray than myself. And I read a book that was probably the most transform. Well, two books of his that were, you know, if you haven't read these, you should read these like yesterday. One is called Behavioral Investment Counseling, which really arms you with a philosophy around investment management that um, creates sustainable relationships with clients and, and really gives you, you know, the thing about philosophy is you can't, Philosophy is like religion. Like you can't tell somebody all the reasons to not be Jewish if they believe that they're, you know, they, yep. they, if that's their religious belief. And I think it's the same thing is true here. Nick Murray arms you with the philosophy that's sustainable in any environment and really brings the focus back to investment behavior. And so that transformed my thought process around investment management. But more specifically, he has, there's a book called Game of Numbers, which is a book designed for prospecting for financial advisors. And that is a must read. And there was a particular passage in Game of Numbers that resonated with me at this critical moment in my life where I would have taken a back office job in an investment bank at the time over, you know, 
um, sweating it out, riding the subway to see people that didn't want to see me at, at investment banks downtown. The passage was basically equated our business to a slot machine and basically draws this analogy that if, if you had a slot machine in your kitchen and you knew that you had to pull it a million, uh, you know, you had to pull it a couple hundred thousand times to, to get a payoff of a million dollars, you would sit there unemotionally and just continue to pull that handle. And you brush your teeth, you pull the handle. You wash the dishes with one hand, you pull the handle. And um, and ultimately, you get paid your million dollars. And he equated that to picking up the phone or making an approach to clients in this business. Mm-hmm. And over time, to the extent, what was a really liberating moment for me was it, when I recognized that to the extent you're willing to to emotionally disconnect from the no, and you're just willing to pull the handle, i.e. call clients or approach prospects or clients, mm-hmm. um, your success is assured. Someone's going to say yes. And your your ratio of no's to yes will improve over time as you get more experience and you learn more. Um, but I would say that that's the most surprising thing to me in this journey is that this is the the only career that I know of that requires no startup costs. The the firms that we all affiliate with or the large firms will front you the cost. They'll give you a computer, they'll give you a desk, they'll give you a phone. Um, And all you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis is your visceral reaction to the word no. And to the extent that you have a management system in place to, to manage your emotions around that two-letter word, you will be successful. And um, and I'm the byproduct of that. And um, that to me is the magic of this of this of this career. I love it. I love it. So for for folks who are listening, just if you're trying to scribble down book names, we'll have this out in the show notes as well. So this is episode 361. So just if you go to kitsis.com slash 361, we'll have um, links out to the Nick Murray books as well. So Peter, what what was the low point for you on this journey? Oh, I mean, there were many. I have a vivid memory of that. I referenced uh, riding a, a subway down to an investment bank. So when I was, you know, cold calling, it was probably around the credit crisis. So, you know, the world is coming unhinged. I'm on primarily a commission-based job. I didn't have much fee revenue at that point. And um, I was meeting with anybody who would talk to me and I was in a suit and, um, you know, I had friends who had moderate degrees of success doing other things. Um, and I was a guy that went to Cornell who's at least on the surface being recognized as somebody, somebody with somebody with a briefcase selling life insurance. And I was going down to a, a well-known investment bank on the subway. It was a hundred degrees outside. And, uh, and I got stood up and I was sweating and I was standing outside this investment bank and I was asking myself, what am I doing with my life? And, um, and right around that time was when I, when I found the Nick Murray books and, you know, what, what was probably a low point in this career um, really turned on a dime to a high point in that uh, I had a philosophy and a roadmap for success. And so yeah. And then I would say another point, my mom was, was my office manager and she was actually, her background was hotels. And that's where I got my idea about bringing hotel people into this business. 
And in 26 or 2015, she was diagnosed with leukemia and, um, and then passed away in 2016. And, uh, and that was a, that was a really, uh, really tough time for me. Um, but she still is remembered and lives on with clients and my clients from that time and is fondly thought of and remains, um, in the back of my mind. And I know she'd be proud in what we're, what we're building. So that's part of my motivation too, is to make her proud. What else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 10, 20 years ago? Oh man. I would say, I still don't think I'm dreaming big enough. And I'm talking about 10 xing our business in the next 10 years, which is a monumental goal. So I would tell myself, don't underestimate what you can do. I go back to Nick Murray's book and, and really, you know, still to this day, I mean, on my posted on my desk, there's, there's prospecting and there's avoiding it. Those are the two activities in this business. And so I just constantly remind myself that um, anything you're doing that's not being in front of clients and pushing the ball forward is avoiding the important work that pushes the ball forward. And that's incidentally why I feel like I'll feel liberated once we hire a CEO for this business is I'll be able to, that post-it will, will resonate again. Right now, um, less prospecting, more day-to-day. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting back to that time where I'm doing what I love to do. And any other advice you'd give younger, newer advisors getting started today? Yeah, I mean, I go back to my um, my original thought, which is don't ask your 25-year-old self today whether you should make that infrastructure hiring decision. Ask yourself, ask your 28-year-old self. Um, of course, that requires growth and a relentless forward momentum and pushing your goals and your business forward. But I've always been a proponent of the good kind of stress. Um, so putting myself in a position where I'm uncomfortable, constantly uncomfortable, but in a good way, because I'm excited about what's ahead. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is literally the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so as someone who's, who's already built what I think anyone would objectively call very successful advisory business as you're coming up on uh, two and a half, three billion of assets and uh, 15, 20 million of revenue. So the, the business is an amazing place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, I mean, my success is about experiences. I've always placed a high emphasis on creating great experiences for my family, myself, my friends. And really great experiences cost a lot of money. So, <laughs> and doing them often costs a lot of money. So, I think I've always been an adventurer. I traveled to Cuba before it was cool before it was like cool and there was a legal way to go to Cuba. I have a certificate in photography. So I enjoy, you know, taking pictures and traveling the world and, and doing that. So I think life is all about experiences. And to the extent that I can bring that to my loved ones and friends um, and, and do it in a regular and a big way. Um, that's really what drives me and not, not, not money specifically, but experiences that require it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for joining us on the 
Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Michael, for everything you do. And we all uh, very much appreciate this podcast and, and the work that you do. So thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.